Welcome to the American Thoracic Society podcast on burnout in the ICU. My name is Liz Sontag. Okay, so one thing we know is that recognizing signs and symptoms of burnout is a first step in reducing it. So today I'm going to chat with three ICU providers to talk about their experiences and hopefully just have an open conversation about burnout signs and symptoms and maybe some ways to reduce it. Um, I'm really pleased to be joined by some of my favorite colleagues. So I have with me Katie Gill, who's an internal medicine resident, Adam Schwartz, who's a pulmonary and critical care fellow, and Tom Bice, who is a pulmonary and critical care attending. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Hello. Thanks for joining. A couple of years ago now, ATS, CHEST, SCCM, and AACN came out with a collaborative statement um, named Burnout Syndrome in Critical Care Healthcare Providers, a Call for Action. And that paper talked about the negative effects of burnout, including increased rates of job turnover, decreased patient satisfaction, and decreased quality of care. So Tom, in your experience in critical care, how have you seen burnout manifest? How has it changed over time? Yeah, so hi guys, this is Tom. Um, I uh, have been a faculty member for five years, so obviously interested in pulmonary critical care for uh, a bit over 10 years. Um, I remember when I would first tell people what uh, that I was interested in doing critical care as a career, uh, most of them would ask me what my backup was uh, <laughs> so that when I was burned out of doing critical care, I would have something else to do. And I think historically that's how people viewed it was an inevitable or potentially inevitable uh, later mid to late career event that you would get tired of always being a critical care physician and so you should have something else to do. Um, but I think over time, that's actually been changing, and we're beginning to see uh, burnout in a much earlier phase in people's careers. And it can, uh, the symptoms of it can even start uh, revealing themselves as early as residency, but certainly in uh, late fellowship and and early uh, early faculty career. Um, and I think it's it's simply important to recognize. Uh, the, the limitations of ourselves and and what uh, things we should be on the lookout when we're talking about burnout. Yeah, how do you see burnout manifest in the residents, for example? Yeah, so uh, residents are usually in a very tough position in the intensive care unit. We take care of very complicated patients. Uh, there are many of them. There are uh, thousands of data points that they are meant to collect and keep track of on a daily basis and report to others. Um, it's um, the, the place where most residents, especially in internal medicine, will see patients die will be in the intensive care unit. And for most interns, it's the first time they experience that. Um, and so to have that high of a stake uh, for any given patient um, creates situations where residents feel like they are doing the best that they can to care for all of these patients. And anytime things are questioned um, or uh, they are 
asked to do things that they either don't understand or don't necessarily agree with, and that leads to extra um, distress. Yeah. What do you think about that, Katie? Does any of that resonate with you being a resident? I think, uh, absolutely. I think being in the ICU is one of the hardest places to be, and um, I'm pretty open with my co-residents about burnout or feeling depressed or out of control at times. Um, and the more I talk to my co-residents, the more I realize that everybody feels that, even if they're walking into work every day with a smiling face. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's kind of understood between all of us that when we leave the ICU, that's one of our most down times, one of the times you just feel kind of done with things. And I think it is because you are confronted with death. You're confronted with very sick patients that you don't always know the answers of how to deal with it. And then sometimes what you want to do exactly as Tom was saying doesn't line up with what the attending thinks or what um, your consultant thinks. And a lot of times you're kind of carrying out the work of someone else's opinion that you might not agree with. And that can definitely create a feeling of burnout. Yeah. I know when I get an intern in the ICU, I always tell them, you know, this place is mentally, physically, and emotionally exhausting. It's mentally exhausting because we take care of incredibly sick, increasingly complicated patients. It's physically exhausting because you round for a long time and you do procedures and you do sometimes codes. Um, And it's emotionally exhausting because you're dealing with death and dying. And sometimes you're dealing with really complex ethical issues too. Um, And so those three things kind of coming together, I think, make the ICU a place where people burn out faster than maybe other rotations. And um, especially those residents and fellows who are high functioning, you know, really great doctors come in and have high expectations of themselves. And in the ICU, it just, um, because they have these high expectations, they feel like they're not meeting their own expectations, not even necessarily the team and the attending, their own ideals. And that can be really distressing too. I completely agree with that, Liz. I think when I first started as an intern and resident, um, myself, like many of my colleagues, come in with intrinsically very high expectations of ourselves. Um, And I felt um, honestly like a failure for much of it until I actually spoke with one of my attendings and um, he was, he he caught that I didn't seem like my best self and was talking to me and um, asked me why I felt that way. And he says, on paper, everything you're doing you're not a failure, you're doing very well. But that's just, I think, a lot of times how we feel because we set these these very high goals and expectations for ourselves. A lot of times in the unit, no matter what you do, your very best efforts are going to have very hard outcomes, whether it be um, actual medical care, whether it be um, discussions with family members, and all of that takes a toll, adds up. This consensus statement says that some of the most common causative factors are um, the best and most productive employees, so kind of what we already said, rather than a late career phenomenon, early physicians, um, long hours, which we have in the ICU, difficult ethical dilemmas, and having difficult discussions with families, and then end-of-life care and high morbidity and mortality. 
So um, one thing I like to think about that worries me a little bit is that a lot of the signs and symptoms of burnout, the um, fatigue, the feeling of um, lack of empathy, the hopelessness, um, anxiety sometimes overlap with anxiety and depression. And we know that physicians have a higher rate than the general public of depression and of um, suicide. And so I wonder if there's any way to figure out um, the difference between burnout and clinical depression and um, how we protect ourselves and each other. I can speak on that. Um, I don't know so much if it matters to differentiate them. Yeah. Um, I think one of the biggest things that I've learned is that a lot of medical professionals deal with feelings of anxiety, depression, or burnout. Pretty much it's pervasive. Um, and I think it starts from med school and you learn to justify it. Like I've got a heart exam, I'm studying for boards. And then after boards, you have that high of, I did well, okay, moving on to the next thing, that's really hard. And so you have these highs and lows. And so you justify your feelings of anxiety or sadness or being stressed. Um, and I think eventually for some people, they catch up to where it's not manageable and you don't know how to identify it anymore. Is it burnout? Is it anxiety? Depression? Does it matter? Yeah. And I think you get help. And one of the things I want to warn people about is that, um, say, be careful labeling as just a phase. Yeah. Um, because I think a kind of a low level of stress can exist for everybody underneath that. And that once you kind of identify it as something's not right, it doesn't matter what you call it. If you get some help, it'll get better. It can get better. Uh, I would yeah. I would add to, to what Katie said. Um, I have uh, yet to meet a, a human being who has not, uh, when they've described it, benefited in some way from therapy. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, it turns out you can talk to therapists about all kinds of things. I think we all have to do a better job making sure that we know what resources are available at our institutions and also taking time in the ICU to have open discussion and time to debrief about really challenging cases or really um, mentally or emotionally taxing um, patient care. Um, the University of Michigan put out this great paper um, called It's Not Just Time Off, a Framework for Understanding Factors Promoting Recovery from Burnout Among Internal Medicine Residents. So I think in most programs, if somebody seems to be burnt out or they're struggling, um, the kind of immediate reaction is taking some time off to regroup. But um, this paper did a great job outlining that there's different types of burnout. And so they grouped it as um, circumstantial burnout. So thinking about things like your workplace environment, the, um, whether you're getting along with your colleagues, if something's going on at home, your finances, circumstances that are causing you stress, anxiety, um, and then existential burnout, this type of burnout where you're not sure if you chose the right profession. You don't know if you want to be a doctor anymore. You're kind of questioning um, your role and the value of your work. And that paper really resonated with me because I've had a couple of residents in the ICU come to me and say, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't feel like myself. I don't know if I should be a doctor. And I think that burnout is a little bit scarier um, and a little bit harder to fix. You guys had any experience with that? 
I think a circumstantial um, burnout can absolutely is probably on a spectrum or could lead to more of, of those um, more serious um, symptoms. I think when you're at the point of questioning what am I doing, where you find yourself just getting angry at a patient or a family member or a colleague for absolutely no reason, that that's a huge wake-up call. Um, what's amazed me um, in my very early and young career is, um, as you said, Liz, reaching out to others um, when you need help and just as importantly, recognizing it in others. Um, it amazes me that um, you're not as alone as you think you are. There are some people that will never want to talk about it, um, but there are much more that actually will. Uh, yeah, and I like, you know, what you said, the fatigue and the exhaustion isn't just physical exhaustion, it's emotional exhaustion. And when your emotional tank is empty, then you start lacking empathy for others, whether it be when you go home to your spouse or friend, whether it be a patient you would normally sit in the room with for 20 minutes who you are more dismissive of. And I think that's a good first um, sign to kind of notice for all of us is, am I being less empathetic than I normally am towards anybody in my life? Because it's, it could just be that you're exhausted, um, not that you're a bad doctor, a bad friend, a bad spouse. Um, and I think it's a good sign to maybe mention to your colleagues, friends, loved ones, can you maybe nudge me if you notice my empathy is slipping because that might be a sign that I just need to take a break or take a step back. And I would, uh, I'm going to break a, a giant attending rule and let you all know um, we don't actually have all the answers <laughs> as attendants. Um, one of the places that I go all the time when I don't know what to do next or I have questions uh, are two of my co-fellows who we're all faculty now and uh, we have a, a group text thread that we have lovingly dubbed the safe space uh, <laughs> and awesome. we can text and we can complain and we can uh, discuss and empathize and share and and it's been uh, great. I love what you said about a safe place and just that sense of community between people who've gone through it and know what you're going through and something just as simple as, oh man, I had this crazy case today and um, kind of flushing it out, how much that can help you not feel alone in this job that we do. Um, Katie, are there any things in your residency program that have been implemented to try to um, combat burnout amongst the residents? Um, yeah, I, we have a program called Taking Care of Your Own, and it is awesome. Um, essentially, it's free psychiatric and then ther psychiatric therapy and um, cognitive behavioral therapy. I think that you can they schedule with them, and you don't have a copay. You can cancel it the day after your appointment, and they will be understanding about it. Um, and it. The people that are the, the providers in this program are highly trained and work specifically with uh, healthcare professionals. And so they know our types. They know mm -hmm. that we are type A. We are um, very hard on ourselves. We have high expectations of ourselves. And so um, I would advocate 
them to anyone in my program. And something that I take it on myself to do is to let my co-residents know when I try. Um, I think there's a stigma with Mm -hmm. getting help and with saying, you know, I'm sad, I'm going through a hard time. I think some people can feel weak when they do that. And I actually see it as a strength. Yeah. When I see people that I admire um, say, hey, I went through this hard time and this is how I got out of it. Um, I really admire that. And so I try to be open about what I have done and what I've gone through. And um, I can't imagine not having a program like this in place, to be honest. Yeah. Maybe we could all say things that we think work really well to combat burnout and things we would like to see change, especially in the ICU setting. Um, I think for me, one thing that has really helped is that I check in with each member of the team individually in a room by ourselves. And I find that they're a lot more open about how they're feeling and where their struggles are. And then they can be addressed early on in the ICU. And I've gotten a lot of great feedback from interns just um, saying they feel like they can talk to their fellow and that's helpful. One thing I would like to see change is having a little more time for debriefing, especially after codes and difficult, um, whether it be difficult ethical cases or just difficult clinical cases so that myself and the attending and um, the team can feel satisfied that we did everything we knew to do and um, if not that we could learn from it for next time. I think that's great Liz Um, and I especially love that you are checking in with team members. I think especially when it's top down that approach is really helpful Um, As a new upper level, I was checking in with my interns in the ICU, and you will find if you talk to them, they are Mm -hmm. upset. Um, Even if they are doing great, performing higher than I ever did as an intern, I'm so impressed with them. They feel terrible about themselves, and they feel terrible about what's going on around them. Um, I haven't talked to an intern that said, I'm loving this. I'm crushing it. I think people leave the ICU. (laughs) I think people leave the ICU with a sense of accomplishment, and They've learned a lot, but while they're in it, um, it's It's hard. It's really tough. And so if you check in and you say, like, how are things going? And I think validating people and saying, you did a great job on this. It sounds so simple, but we all are very insecure. And just having that validation, like, you're doing everything you should be. Um, That's a great thing for all of us to remember is say out loud when somebody did a good job. You did a good job. And that's maybe something we could all try to do a little bit. I think More. it's tough, too, because we're just kind of expected to do good. So if you do good, great, you did your job. But yeah. So we're not really... But it's sad, right? Like, for at least um, the three of us who have chosen pulmonary critical care as our career, we want people to be in the ICU and say, I'm loving this, I'm crushing it. <laughs> the fact that nobody feels that way is sad. Um, because it, even though it's a hard place and there's a lot of... Um, emotional difficulty it really should be for me it's the funnest place in the hospital so um yeah trying to do things to make sure other people feel that way I think would be important I love the idea of calling calling things out that was really hard that we did and you don't want to use the word normalize but that's the word that comes to mind the the feelings that we we all have and Again, it surprised me over and over how many other people feel the same things that everyone wears their feelings on their sleeve at any given time. But being willing to talk about it with your 
your friends, your colleagues, whether it be your coworkers or on a text message thread with, with, with old friends, that's extremely powerful. I think it's it's um, a huge step that it's being recognized more and more programs are are taking further steps to um, to educate about it, to make resources available, to seek professional help. I think the stigma to an extent is is um, Hopefully fading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I love, you know, that Katie on one hand said, let's say more things like, you did a great job, that was awesome, you're doing good, and then Adam brought in, let's also say out loud things like, that was really awful, or that was really hard, um, so that we're validating both when people are doing great, and that we're all feeling some of the struggle. What about you? I feel the need to say something now because I sounded really negative earlier. (laughs) Uh, But one of the things I love, love, love about the ICU is the camaraderie and like the team spirit. You, I remember I was so shy at the beginning of intern year. I didn't speak. And then the Mickey was one of the first places where I finally started, like I could feel like myself and you got really close with people and it was just kind of fun. You're in the, you're in the trenches with people. Um, And one of the things I also love about the ICU is the attendings. We have awesome ICU attendees and one of them was we were on on a Saturday this year and I was an upper level I'm a new upper level in the ICU and we had a really sick young woman um around our age and it was terrible and the attending was there way past when he should have been 11 o'clock it was one of those days where all the outside hospitals were transferring their patients in because of the hurricane and it was a terrible terrible day and he stayed there with us and he was there for every step of the way with us. We talked openly about it. We said how bad this sucked that she, we were losing her. Yeah. Um, and that is one of the cool things about the ICU is that he wasn't just an attending. He was kind of our friend in that process, a leader still, but with us every step of the way. Yeah. Um, and you don't get that in every, every rotation, every, rotation. every subspecialty. No. Yeah. No. What do you think, Tom? That's a great story. I wish I was that attending. <laughs> but I was not. Um, I would say, actually, uh, again, to go back to say where we don't have all the answers. And so one of the ways that I always introduce myself to a team that is either just starting in the ICU or that I'm just starting in the ICU with a team that's been there is to begin in a, in a way that is not insulting but to say, I have very low expectations for your ability to practice critical care. That has surprised me at how easy it was and how easy, easily it actually worked to let the residents and the interns and the fellows even to know that, you know, look, I don't expect that you are all experts. Um, at this point. And, you know, I don't know everything either. You're going to hear me say, I don't know during this week, month, um, however long. I've said, I don't know more than any other phrase in the ICU. And then the the next thing is, like like Liz said, um, checking in uh, along the way. And most importantly, when you start to see things that are abnormal, even if it's just slightly, you break off and you meet one-on-one with those people. And that, that has been some of, like you said, the most powerful time that I've mm-hmm. had to say, look, that didn't feel very good. What was happening? Um, and I think that's the thing that I do the most 
different now than I did when I first started. Um, and I, I would absolutely echo, um, you know, when we have difficult family conversations or difficult interactions um, or, you know, codes and difficult young patients dying or mistakes or errors or any of those things that are absolutely going to be traumatic, but also are absolutely going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, it's important to say, what did we all think about that? And what do, how do we all think that went? Um, and to, to get their feedback and then to provide and say, you know, actually, you may have thought that went awful, but considering the circumstances, that went really well from my perspective. And uh, sometimes it's a simple matter of reframing. Yeah. We all are going to struggle with this. And I think it's important to highlight burnout as, a, as, a, as an issue, especially in critical care. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for joining me. I think it's great just to have an open conversation and hopefully it will resonate with some of our listeners. And for our listeners, thanks for listening and don't forget to take care of yourselves and each other. Um, and to know your resources at whatever institution you're working. Thank you.